Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. My name is Victor Shi. I'm a sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience as uh, the only female prosecutor in the Watergate case. I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst and the wearer of Jill's pins. And today's pin is a special one for our guest, Paula Poundstone. It's the comedy and drama symbols. And that's because our guest today will surely make you laugh. She is a popular panelist and one of my favorite uh, uh, panelists on NPR's weekly clever and funny news quiz, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It's broadcast from Victor's in my hometown, Chicago, and Paula tours regularly in addition to that show, performing stand-up throughout the country. She was the first woman ever to share the stage with the president at the White House Correspondents' Dinner as the host and comic. She also has held numerous HBO specials, starred in her own series on HBO and ABC, is included in Comedy Central's list of top 100 comics of all time, and has won the American Comedy Award. The national spokesman for the American Library Association is also Paula Poundstone, so we'll talk about that as well as many other things. She's also written two books, There's Nothing in This Book That I Meant to Say, and the totally unscientific study of the search for happiness. So let's welcome Paula. We're very grateful to have you with us today, Paula. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Likewise. So I am fascinated by your life. Um, your, your mom was a housewife and your dad was an engineer and you began doing stand-up comedy at open mic nights in Boston at 20 years old in 1979 and traveled around the country via Greyhound. Um, were you always interested in comedy? The first sentence of the last paragraph of the summary letter written by my kindergarten teacher, which I, I believe was written in lieu of a uh, report card, she said, I have enjoyed many of Paula's humorous comments about our activities. Um, and I still have that letter. In fact, now, I don't know where, now it's blown up and framed. I don't quite know where that ended up, but it's somewhere around here. Uh, the fact that adults responded to something that I said, like that it made an adult laugh, had such an impact on me. Um, and so, yes, I was always interested in comedy. I don't think I always knew, uh, well, I didn't know anything about stand-up comedy when I was a kid because to watch stand-up comedy, I had to watch The Tonight Show. And my parents didn't really enjoy my company enough to have me up that late. <laughs> well, I, I think I have to ask, what was the commentary about the activities that you did? I can't even imagine anymore. I mean, it must have been like a type five on I don't know, crayons. I, I can't remember any longer what I might have <laughs> said back then. But, uh, you know, I was I was reunited with uh, Mrs. Bump. Um, I don't know, within the time of my career, she's come to a couple of shows and, and come to see me. I'm so grateful that, because a year later, the teacher in first grade wrote out, you know, she put the grades on the report card and then there would be this little inserts that they would put in there with a note you know, to sort of personalize it. And uh, I still have that too. And it says that um, uh, I was prone to emotional outbursts. I think it also said that I should be tutored in handwriting, maybe. Uh, yeah, which none of those things could you really base a career on. <laughs> well, so it seems like you definitely did have a talent for being funny. Uh, at what moment did you realize you wanted to perform in front of an audience? And, and I guess maybe what was that first performance like for you? Well, when I was young and I, I and I was, you know, sort of fantasizing about it all, I wanted to be, I wanted to be Carol Burnett or Lily Tomlin or Mary Tyler Moore or Lucille Ball or Gilda Radner, and I and I missed all that by a country mile. But um, I uh, I happened to be living in Boston, um, bussing tables for a living when uh, the what when the stand-up comedy scene there sort of started up. 
Now, obviously, stand-up has, you know, the idea of somebody standing up and telling jokes has been around since probably we were in the caves. But um, uh, there was a renewal of interest in that form of entertainment that Mm -hmm. took place in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was lucky enough to be in that city when that happened. So my my biggest fear um, about doing comedy is me thinking that I'm funny, but others not thinking the same. Did, did you feel <laughs> that way when you first started performing in front of an audience? Because I would find it petrifying. You know, yes, but the desire to do it is so strong that you kind of, I think it's probably, I've never given birth before, but I, I would imagine it's it's something like, like that in that you you forget about the painful part um you, you know and so you you have a tendency or 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 actually i can say as an addict you uh you you forget about how badly something screwed you up before and so then you just keep thinking it's a good idea to do it again that's kind of what stand-up comedy is like so i've never wanted to be a comic um and never had much talent for that but I, I do know that when I've given speeches and people laugh at the right moment when right. I say something, it is the most rewarding thing ever. And so going back to you know, your career, in 1984, you had a dramatic breakthrough. Um, one of your performances was noticed by someone with great name recognition, and that's Robin Williams. So can you talk about um, how you came to have Robin see you perform and what happened as a result of that? Um, Well, I left Boston on a Greyhound bus in, I don't know, only after about a year of being stand up there uh, to see what clubs were like in different cities. And I would live on the Greyhound. I I would buy what was called back then an Ameripass. It was a, a blank ticket book essentially that you could use for 30 days and uh, so I just lived on, a, on the Greyhound bus. And I ended up, um, you know, so went to all sorts of different cities. And I, I ended up um, in San Francisco, which from the minute I stepped off the bus, I've always likened it to Dorothy uh, when she came out of the house after it had landed and before she had lived in this black and white world. And now there's this you know, color world. Um, uh, and that was even the bad section of San Francisco. Um, so I, I ended up doing a set that maybe one or two nights into my stay, um, on, uh, at a, at a club called the other cafe. And I fell in love with the audience there. And so I just sort of stayed. I, I just left sort of an open-ended trip and Robin Williams, by that time, was already a big, yeah. huge star. Um, he was probably still on Mork and Mindy at that point, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was just around. He would come into clubs all the time. So there was, no, there was nothing really unique about him seeing me in, in particular. Um, he, uh, he hung around. The truth is... I firmly believe that every comic my age and younger owes a debt of gratitude to Robin because part of what pumped up the comedy scene in all these smaller cities than Los Angeles or New York, um, where there was no comedy scene before that um, uh, in these uh, in the smaller cities, part of what pumped it up was that Robin would show up. When he did a tour, like if he was performing at some 3,000-seat amphitheater in Cleveland... He would show up at Uncle Funny's Yuck House at one in the morning after his big, huge Huda Hata show. Um, and so people went out to clubs a lot of times hoping they would, you know, hoping they would see him. And because he was the Tasmanian devil of stand-up comedy, they often did see him. So he, uh, you know, he befriended me. And at the time he had this, um, he had a management company that was like a big deal management company in LA and so did Dana Carvey and Dana Carvey was my roommate. And so the two of them introduced me 
um, to their management. And uh, Robin was always a big supporter. When he did, when he hosted Saturday Night Live, he got them to let me come on and do stand-up. Um, and that was, I don't know, mid-80s maybe? In fact, the truth is I wasn't, I really wasn't all that good. But um, so, uh, it was so much pressure that uh, I caved a little bit. But um, anyways, he was always a, a terrific supporter. That's so wonderful. And obviously Saturday Night Live must have opened you to a lot of new audiences. Um, it certainly um, resulted in, not particularly that, but as your career, you won a lot of awards, um, and including the Best Female Stand-Up Comic um, and you became the first woman to win the award for cable excellence, the ACE Award. And um, you basically were a pioneer in comedy. Um, and you've mentioned some of your role models. Um, were, were they the ones who really guided you in terms of following this career path? Um. Well, I, I have always wanted to be like a comic actress. And as I say, I, I missed that by a country mile. I mean, I'm a stand-up comic. And I, I get to do other little jobs, different kinds of performing here and there. But in the main, you know, uh, if, if, I were, if I were to uh, have a gravestone, which I won't, um, uh, uh, but if I were to write my own epitaph, uh, which I also won't, um, it would be a little bit like uh, Ben Franklin, I think, um, in that, uh, you know, he, he, he made his own epitaph and he, and he said that he was a printer. Um, and I would, I'm a, I'm a table busser and a stand-up comic. And the truth is, I'm probably better suited to table busing. I was unbelievable table busser. Never saw anything like it. But um, I never got awards for it. I have a feeling you are underestimating your own <laughs> skills and talent because uh, those that's because you haven't seen me bust tables. <laughs> well, that's true. I can't compare it. There's no question. Um, I, I I wonder has COVID had a big impact on performing because there aren't live venues really where people are coming in. Is that making a difference? Well, yeah. I mean, now I've been back out on the road since June. Um, uh, you know, I'm out for a couple couple nights on the weekend, and uh, same as I used to be mm-hmm. in theaters. Uh, uh, the various theaters have modifications due to COVID uh, in different ways. I work some places now where the audience is spaced apart. Um, you can sit with the party that you came in with, yeah. but you're you know six feet away from other people. I'm not sure that makes any difference, anyways. But that's what they're they do in some places. Um, and it's the opposite of how one might normally do it because, um, you know, if, if I, and I'm not going to say this has ever happened, but if I was working a theater in the before time and maybe not as many people as I would like to have been there attended, um, then I or someone else would, would go out on stage and say, you know, how about if everybody, uh, you know, there's some empty seats right down front. How about if everybody comes and fills up these seats, you know, and then you, and the reason people do that is to, to sort of bundle that energy. Um, and it does make a difference. So now we're doing the opposite in some settings, which is, you know, some, uh, you know, you don't really know where you're playing. So I, I play to, you know, and some theaters are streaming now, uh, which even if we ever get COVID under control, and I'm not convinced that we will. But even if we did, um, they're never going to give up that streaming thing because it's another, uh, you know, it's another uh, uh, form of income. Um, but during this stay-at-home order, oh my gosh, it was uh, just like for everybody else. It was a lonely, lonely time, uh, and it, and it, you know, such uncertainty, not knowing about when your income is coming back or right. if it's coming back. And I, I um, think streaming will go away because we're all getting really tired of zooming. And well, that's true. Yeah. That yeah. that is absolutely true. I um I did you know I performed via Zoom in all sorts of or, or I made comedy videos and things during yeah. the stay at home order. 
um, because it was the because it was the best I could do in the moment. Um, you cannot do stand up comedy, however. So I would do characters, or uh, I did a little game show. Um, uh, and mercifully, I, I do have a podcast. Uh, um, uh, it's so. I did those things to sort of fill in the gaps a little bit, but you can't do stand-up comedy in your living room. No. I'll tell you, uh, no. In fact, I, I'm, I'm off and on very jealous of musicians as a performer anyways, because a musician can go on stage and get all sorts of reactions, and, and they're all considered, you know, successful. It was a successful appearance. Um, Whereas a comic, there's only one reaction you can get, right? If people aren't yeah. laughing, guess what? It didn't go very well. So I, already I'm a little jealous of musicians. Also because they can go out on stage like before they even begin and go like, whoo, a comic really can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of, fr- but uh, when, when the stay-at-home home order hit, um, musicians were able to like do, you know, do a little Zoom show from their living room, yeah. playing their guitar and singing. And people were like, oh, oh, it's so into, oh, isn't it? The news hour on PBS, which I watch pretty much every night, I'm telling you, did I think it was two different stories on Mary Chapin Carpenter singing in her kitchen. I was so jealous. I, I, I've come to hate Mary, Capen, Mary Chapin Carpenter. <laughs> I, I don't think she usually elicits this kind of reaction from people, but I'm just pissed at her. Oh. Well, my, my favorite that would be the combination of what you're saying would be Bette Midler, who is a comic but a singer and a dancer. And she's the person yeah. I want to be in my next life. I would love to be able to stand up on a stage and dominate it the way she does. But, oh, well, that's not going to happen. the idea. <laughs> uh, th- I, that's, like a, that's like a movie. That's like um, uh, heaven can wait or something. The idea that you come back as someone else, but there's still a, there's still a hint of uh, Jill Winebanks. And so yes. it's Bette Midler, but wait, Jill Winebanks is in there somewhere? Yeah. I like that. I would love that. I'm sure we would all watch that. Um, well, I want to get back to your career, Paula, because not only are you a comedian, but you were also um, a political correspondent for The Tonight Show um, when Jay Leno was hosting. Um, and when I first read that, I thought of people like Jordan Klepper um, and like Amber Ruffin. I'm wondering what that entailed for you. Was it like serious news? What was the preparation for um, a political correspondent on The Tonight Show? Um, you know, it was so long ago. I'm not sure I remember exactly how I prepared. I, I'm, <laughs> I, th- I think it was my manager's idea, this idea of me doing uh, that. I did the conventions and then I did the inauguration. And, um, and it was right after Jay had just gotten The Tonight Show. And um, it was sort of a, a lucky thing for me in terms of timing because, honestly, they were still trying to get their sea legs over at their new show and here I got I was given this chance to go do something that was very unscripted and um a lot of shows and one can't really blame them for this but a lot of shows would want a lot more restraint on the people that were working on their show whereas they didn't even know where I was going to be when he came to me sometimes because I didn't know um, until like the, the very close to the time I was going to go on. And um, I think part of what made it, I don't know, successful um, was that I'm not all that well informed about politics. I mean, I probably am more now than I was then because I spent a lot of hours watching that stuff. Um, but uh, I think I was seeing it in some ways, the way the average American did, which was I was genuinely surprised by a lot of things. Here's just one small example. I was in a hallway. This must have been Houston, where they did the um, Republican convention that year. And I was in like this big backstage hallway, and I see this cart, this enormous cart of wooden 
uh, of signs that are, you know, stapled to the, to the wooden stick. And it wheels by me. And I was like, people don't bring their own signs. <laughs> like I had this idea. I mean, now it seems clear, <laughs> but I had this idea that people in their enthusiasm, right? Like at the, like, you know how people loved taking pictures of the signs at the, at the, uh, at the women's march. Yeah. Um, because the signs were like, the signs were performers themselves sometimes. Um, I had this idea that everyone in their enthusiasm for the first George Bush, this was, were, you know, down on their hands and knees in their garage, uh, you know, magic markering on a cardboard thing. Or I thought everyone made their own signs. And then you get there like, no, the signs are distributed. Oh, <laughs> kind of sucks a little bit of the life out of it, I think. Um, I, I can I can tell you that all of in, in my room are a bunch of political signs and all of the political signs are from rallies because they were for free and so that's why I go to rallies to get the signs <laughs> and then to also watch <laughs> the speaker. But um, what about, so when so, you when you choose a different kind of decor, like when you uh, <laughs> uh, then you're just going to give up on politics altogether. Is that correct? Because it won't matter anymore. Once you go to like doilies or something, <laughs> then you won't care about politics. Maybe, maybe. But I think politics will always stick with it. It's a political junkie at heart. Um, but I'm wondering, so you were a political correspondent, and then that led you to host your own variety show, the Paula Poundstone Show. Um, what was your goal in hosting that show? And was that how different was that hosting your show in, um, compared to you doing stand-up? Because when you hosted your show, you didn't speak in front of a live audience, but a camera. Oh, no. I did speak in front of a live audience. Uh, they were... Uh uh, you know, you're, you're sort of in the, the camera sort of in between you and the audience though. So, um, well, I, I, I launched a couple of different sort of, uh, hard to describe shows. They were a little bit variety. They were a little bit talk show. They were, um, I don't know. They were, I, I did stuff where, and this is, I mean, now, uh, like you and I on zoom, can set up a camera and I can see you, um, in television. That was not as much of a thing back then. That wasn't as, so a lot of the technology has changed and made things a lot easier, but I did like a lot of remote stuff, uh, on my show for, uh, I had a, I had a screen up there. Um, uh, when I challenged at one point, I challenged Carl Lewis, who was at that time, the fastest man in the world. So I forget, he probably was in, I think he was in Texas at the time. And I challenged him to a 50-yard dash um, where I was standing in Santa Monica and he was in uh, Houston. And I had a glove on top of my screen. And I, after he accepted the challenge, I slapped him with the glove, uh, you know, because that's how you make a challenge. Um, and actually my plan, that the ABC show that I had got taken off within a couple of episodes um, but my plan had been to sort of build up to this Carl Lewis race. And one of the things that I wanted to do was, um, I, I, you know, when, whenever we saw him or whenever we see like a, uh, you know, track and field event with people running, um, but when, certainly when we saw Carl Lewis, we saw the fastest man in the world running but he was running in competition with the second fastest man in the world and the third fastest man in the world and so on and so forth. And therefore, we have no idea really what it looks like. So my idea was to get, you know, a crane shot of he and I running so that people could see exactly how far away <laughs> a regular person was, you know, really what those times mean. Um, Overall, my goal, just like any other show that I do, overall, my goal is to uh, is to to lift people up, to give them the dopamine hit of laughter. Uh, I also, whenever I have a show that is like, say, for example, my podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone, or the ABC show, or the HBO talk show, always I like to do stuff where there's real information being exchanged. Um, I And... and in a humorous way, perhaps, yeah. but that the information is real. Um, just because that way, there, if people go away and they think, well, it wasn't all that funny, they can at least go, you know, but I didn't know there were that many Oreos in a package. <laughs> well, that's the perfect lead in to questions about wait, wait, don't tell me. 
because that's a show that does have real information, sort of sometimes things that if you were paying attention, you heard on the news, but kind of oddball things. And um, Victor is extremely well-informed, but I have to say he hadn't heard of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, something that I follow every single week and love you on. Um, So I want to introduce his generation to that show by having you describe what how you would describe Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Well, um, it is a news quiz show, but it's a comedy news quiz show. So there's a panel of three people every week, and we answer questions about things, uh, about stories in the news. Um, And we're competing, by the way. Uh, We're competing for points. Uh, I'm going to tell you something, Victor, that... uh, uh, maybe I shouldn't. This is sort of a, well, it's a little dirt on Ooh. wait, wait, don't tell me. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this, um, but um, there's doping. Uh, no. Yeah. Moraka juicer. Uh, a lot of people, oh, wow. you know, in their effort to win, people, th- people say to me all the time because, uh, well, if you've never... Uh, listened before, Victor, you don't know this, but I hold the record for losses on the show. And <laughs> so I love having the chance to talk about it because uh, I like to clear up a misconception, which is this. Yes, I am trying to win. A lot of people think I throw the match. Uh, I don't. I'm just not as good at it as the others. They seem to have been born into the world with knowledge of current events. And <laughs> I just wasn't. I don't know so, if that's a disability. So does anybody what, get, I mean, do you get um, information in advance? Are you, is no. it sort of like you get the answers? No. Um, no. Well, we, we know that it's based on the week's news. Right. So, right. you know, we have some idea where one might seek out the answers, but we don't know what the questions are going to be. Um, in fact, uh, we, if, if for any reason they're running late, um, my the the host of the show is a guy named uh, uh, Peter Sagel, very funny, brilliant man. Oh, he is. Um, if they're if if the if Peter and the producers are working on the show when when we the panelists show up and they still happen to be on the stage like doing a run through, um, they'll they'll stop talking when we come in the room because they don't want to give away. Ah. It, they don't want anybody to know what the you know, what the questions are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, not that it would really matter to me, I don't think. <laughs> if, I, if I didn't know it before, I'm not going to know it then. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, Jill's right, there's a lot of news of the weird involved too. And the truth is, again, I am, I'm kind of obsessive about watching the news now. Uh, and so most, most regular news questions I probably would get right but they always what takes you out is the news of the weird. There's yeah. always some story of, honestly, some idiot in Florida doing something, you know, <laughs> where I've always, I've always said that if, if I were to go in armed with the answers, Trump, Biden, Afghanistan, COVID, and lemurs down their pants... <laughs> I would probably win any given episode. So there's one part of it that I, I, you obviously have to prepare for. You can't do it on the spot. And that's the fool the listener where all three panelists. Fool the listener. Yeah. So oh. how much time do you get for that subject? And um, how do you get assigned who gets the real story and who has to make up their answer to it? And the producer just emails us usually the night before. Um, or maybe even the day before. And sometimes they'll throw in this cute, funny little note, the way I see it, that says, um, we'd like these stories in by tonight. <laughs> I find that just charming. Um, <laughs> one time I was writing it while I was on stage. Peter's like, Paul, what are you doing? I'm not quite finished with the old bluff story. <laughs> I, you know, the problem with the bluff story uh, so they'll send, uh, so Victor, um, it's a section of the show called Bluff the Listener. There'll be a story in the news that the producers find. They give 
that the telling of that story to one of the three panelists. I don't know how they decide. I assume it's fairly random. And then the other two of us have to write stories that fall under a similar sort of umbrella. Um, but we are making up our stories, whereas the people reading the real story can't, um, you know, they can't alter the facts in the story in any way. Uh, and then a listener who's called in has to choose which is the real story. Uh, my problem is just coming up with an idea. Yeah. I'm not, you know, ideas come to me somewhat slowly. I, is it, I, often, I often get good creative writing ideas for any one of the things that I do, whether it's for the podcast or for my act or for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I often get really good creative ideas while I'm walking the dogs. But here's the dirty <laughs> little secret. I hate walking the dogs. <laughs> well, it's worth it. I have it. to confess, though. It, I, well, you know what I often do is I often listen to uh, hashtag sisters-in-law while I walk well, the dog. I listen to it over and over oh, again. That's because, such an honor. Well, let's talk well, about your podcast now, then. Uh, because my podcast, hash, which uh, yeah. is called Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. Which I would so argue me, is no not true. No, that isn't true. They don't listen more than once. Oh, they do. I'm sure they do. <laughs> and I, I, but let's talk about um, when, when did you launch that and how did you decide to go with a podcast? Um, I think we've been doing Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone for, for about three years, or just, maybe just shy of three years. I'm not quite... I'm not quite sure. I would have to cut off my arm and count the rings, and I'm not going to do that right now. Um, uh, and before that podcast, um, Doug Berman from uh, who's the uh, the what do they call him the benevolent overlord right. of uh, Wait Wait Don't Tell Me? Um, he had come to me and asked if I wanted to do a podcast. You know develop one with with him and so we had we were working on that it was called live from the poundstone institute i think and um it it was uh, it was very expensive um so it was very hard, hard to uh very hard to turn a profit it's very hard to turn as as Jill, my guess yeah. is you're well apprised of this by now. Yes. <laughs> it's very hard. It's, it's very much like it's because because it's like the gold rush. You know, uh, they say that in the gold rush, the, the people who, had, who made money were the people who sold the picks and shovels. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of people podcasting. There's millions yeah. of people podcasting. Yeah. And uh, somebody like Mark Marin, who, you know, started before anybody knew what the hell a podcast was. Well, He's doing pretty good, uh, and he'd be the first to say so. You know that he got in when the getting was good. Um, we've continued, so so we did that one with NPR, and, and we were sort of auditioning for a you know quote unquote sidekick. And my friend from Wait Wait Don't Tell Me, Adam Felber, uh, mm. actually Doug I think had called him up to ask him if he had any ideas of someone who uh, could work with me in that capacity. And Adam was like, uh, how about me? And uh, <laughs> so we went, when we decided to wrap on, uh, on uh, Life from the Poundstone Institute, me and Adam and my manager, Bonnie, and another guy that was working with us, Ken Lizebnik, you know, we decided we'd take a pass at, at, a, at a less expensive kind. And part of the reason it was so expensive is because we did have a live audience. Mm. Um, we had NPR doing the sound, which, wow. um, you know, you guys know. Like, yes. You know, I listened to, um, oh, shoot. Uh, oh, oh, I listened to the Al Hunt and James Carville podcast. Yes. You can hear James's wife putting the dishes away behind him. <laughs> Well, you may hear my dog soon because we're getting thunder and lightning here, and oh, so no. he may react. But um, we have is some... your dog is your dog one of those dogs that gets scared of uh, of? No, he just wants me to know. He, he he he's very responsive to if the landline phone rings, you will hear him howl. Otherwise, he's, really, yeah, he's laying here quietly now. But um, 
if, if the lightning gets bad, I may be freaking out and that'll send a message to him. But um, we have the best producers, of course, both sisters-in-law and this and Carvel and um, uh, is produced oh, right. by Politicon. Politicon, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. bravo yeah. for Politicon. They are the best. And um, so, um, Victor, why don't you go ahead with your next question? Well, so uh, in addition to your time as a comedian, you're also an author of two books. Um, the first is There Is Nothing in This Book I mean, mean to Say, and the second is The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. Um, I'd like to ask you about your second book because we're all, I think, searching for happiness um, as you recover from this pandemic. And the, the description of this book I found very interesting and also um, amusing. And, and I just want to read from the description. It, it reads, uh, offering herself up as a human guinea pig in a series of thoroughly unscientific experiments, Poundstone tries out a different get-happy hypothesis in each chapter of her data-driven search. She gets in shape with taekwondo, she drives fast behind the wheel of a Lamborghini, she communes with nature while camping with her daughter, and commits to getting her house organized twice. Swing dancing, meditation, volunteering, does any of it bring her happiness? You may be laughing too hard to care. Um... You find the secret to human happiness? I kind of think I did. It's a biochemical process. I, I think that um, there are, there are things, I always say to people, I go, you know, look at, I love a, I love a Ferris wheel. I, I can go up in a Ferris wheel and really enjoy it because it's cool. Um, but when it comes back down, I get let off. Um, I, there's, there's nothing, there's no, it's not an aquifer, you know, it didn't store anything up. Mm -hmm. um, but there are things that you can do, um, specifically exercise. I wish it wasn't. <laughs> I really wish it wasn't. I wish it was sitting in a chair eating Doritos. But when I wrote my book, the Get Fit Experiment was actually the first one that I did. And I had to write everything in chronological order. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, change it up and lie and say, well, I did it this, at this point in the, in the book or that point in the book, because, um, it's because the book is, is, uh, also a memoir. Um, so I've written two memoirs now and you get to keep writing memoirs so long as you're alive. That's one of the things. Um, but so what I used, at, cause every chapter is written as an experiment with the hypothesis and the conditions and the qualitative and quantitative uh, observations and field notes, etc. Um, but what I used as the conditions so that people could see where this happiness would y y play out was um, just this, just whatever was going on in my family's life, my life, but in the life of taking care of my children during that stretch of time. And uh, so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't change it around and go like, oh no, they were, oh no, he wasn't four, he was 12. Um, and if I had my, you know, if I had it to do again, I think I would put the fitness chapter towards the end um, because, you know, ta-da, found it. Um, it's not all there is to it or there wouldn't be so many unhappy tennis players, but <laughs> it's, it's remarkable. But also the other thing about that is I'm not happy while I'm exercising. I'm miserable while I'm exercising. But I find that I feel uplifted in the wake of it. Uh, same thing with you know with getting organized. Oh my god, that was that was the dramatic climax of the book. <laughs> I went into such a tailspin from trying to get organized because you're going through like your stuff, and there's such a psychological you know connection to all of it. Um, and and of course we don't need three quarters of what most of us have, uh, and I don't know. So well, yeah, I, I, I know my answer is it's a it, but it is a biochemical process. Happiness. Well, I know Jill has a few more questions, but I do want to urge our audience to follow you on Twitter because you post your exercise routine um every night and and if i recall correctly it's it's a combination of like jumping jacks push-ups squats and plank or, or some some combination of those so yeah, if you want to if you want to if you want to stay updated on what paula does every night i i highly recommend following her on twitter and and, and it's something i cannot 
replicate for sure because your push-ups especially are just really a lot. But I want to ask you about... You know, but the whole point of it was... I mean, I started doing that workout during uh, the stay-at-home order. But the whole point was I just wanted to be able to do real push-ups. And so I started with just 10 push-ups on my knees twice a day with this commitment that I would add one on each week. And people write to me all the time because I do post it. I post it because if I didn't, I wouldn't do it. Uh. I'm only doing it because I told everyone I was going to. And I would feel terrible if I didn't do what I said I was going to do. So that, by the way, is a helpful way to get yourself doing what you're supposed to be doing. But I, I the whole point of it, because people write to me all the time and they go like, oh, I, am I too late? Am I th-? And I'm like, no, start wherever, yeah. just start small and build and then be consistent about doing it. It's sort of a metaphor for everything, is it not? It is. That's great advice. And yeah. But I, I want to ask you about the... Um, involvement you have with libraries, because it's a passion that I share with you. Uh, I mean, I can remember going to my neighborhood library on North Broadway in Chicago and being introduced to a world beyond my world and loving it. And you're the national spokesperson for the American Library Association. So can you just talk a little bit about why you love libraries and um, what people should know? Well, what's not to love about a library? You, you know, it's got, it's got, everything's in there. <laughs> All the information, everything we need to know is in there somewhere. Um, I have been, well, largely, mostly what I do, honestly, is I go entertain the librarians. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I do all their, um, you know, what are they called? ALA, you know, American Library Association events. I go, mm-hmm. I go and entertain, um, and I also have a lot of totes, tremendous amount of library totes. Uh, so if anybody needs that, let me know. Um, I remember years ago, I mean, di- libraries are not all the same. Uh, the, the different libraries have different programs. They, they tend to be very responsive to the community's needs. Um, and they've gotten... Um, Here's an example. Uh, years ago, they were rebuilding our main library here in Santa Monica. And um, so they moved all the children's books to, uh, you know, a, a branch that's a little bit harder to get to for us than, than, than the, the main library. Uh, and so we had to keep going to that branch to get the children's books. Um, and one day, and it was very, it was small, um, and so one day, uh, me and my kids were just hanging out there, and we had uh, we were looking for books to take home. And my daughter Tosha and I uh, had picked up a book, and we sat down at a table. And there's a bunch of tables kind of crammed together in this area because they were because they were doing construction on the main library, and every all the branches things got smushed. So we're sitting at this table looking at a book. And both of us become aware that there's these two adults sitting at a table, uh, you know, near us. And, and we realized one of the adults was teaching the other adult to read. And, you know, we didn't want to stare or make them feel self-conscious. So we kind of kept to what we were doing. And, and then, you know, and then we, you know, finished up and went and got the other two kids and we, you know, got, went to the car and, and uh, I was saying to them on the way home, I mean, like I, I had, uh, you know, there were, I, I had horripilations from this, which is when your arm hairs stand up. It made, it made my hair stand on end just hearing this exchange between these two people. And I said to my kids, I said, you know, when you volunteer, or when you donate, you always kind of wonder, well, okay, you know, I'm ha- it's not that I'm not happy to do this, but you always wonder, is it having an impact? Is it, does it make any difference? And I'll tell you something, those two courageous people, what they were doing at that table in that library will continue 
to have a positive impact, like a like a like a ripple, for a long, long time. And uh, I know now they finished the main branch years ago, and now they have homework rooms, you know, that are with a door to them, and the table is in there. And I'm sure that if they still have uh, a volunteer adult literacy program, that they're using the privacy of those little homework rooms. Um, but what a thing. And well, at one point, I remember talking to a children's librarian who was telling me that, she, that they were going to start a ukulele club. And my point is just that, you know, they have, their, they have their finger on the pulse of the community and they do stuff that makes it a better place to be. That's the perfect place for us to end because it shows that you are not just funny and witty, but you are also inspirational and contributing a lot. So we thank you very much for being with us today. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you so much. Uh, uh, Jill and Victor, it's really been fun talking with you. Thank you, Paula. Take care, you guys. Stay safe. Thank you. So, Victor, I thought that was a great conversation with Paula, and I would look forward to talking to her more. What about you? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think she's a natural comedian and she makes us all laugh during these difficult times. But um, right right before we were recording this, we were talking about what concerns us given the influx of news that happened last week and this week. And I'm wondering what what concerns you most heading into the midterm elections and and what's on on your mind uh, this week? Oh, there are so many things to really worry about. Um, Of course, the midterm elections worry me and the possibility that the Republicans could take control again is very scary. I'd say the uh, couple things that are most important to me right now are voting rights and what's happening at the state level and why the Democrats need to start paying attention to electing uh, Democratic legislatures and Democratic uh, state houses. That would be very high on my list. And... um, What about you, Victor? What's number one on your list? You stole it right from me. I was going to say electing um, state legislatures on local and the state level. I think it's easy to pay attention to national politics or kind of get a little bit cynical about what's happening on the national level. But I think what's happening in Texas and elsewhere just demonstrates the importance of local state politics. And of course, don't forget the national politics, but also not forgetting the state and local levels because those are directly connected to your lives. And I think um, you know, voter turnout has historically been low for those levels, but hopefully in 2022, we can look at what's happening in these states and communities regarding, you know, critical race theory, these school boards, and, and think, you know, we all have a voice and it can sometimes be heard most directly on that local state level. So I think that's what concerns me, that people won't turn out for those levels and they'll just kind of vote for, you know, representatives and senators. But I, I just really hope that Democrats will push for people to vote on the local and state level. And you mentioned the school board. That's becoming a very important job for um, the local communities. And I hope there will be enough candidates from the Democratic Party for those positions, because otherwise education could be severely damaged. But I was interested that you agreed with me on voting rights, because this is supposed to be an intergenerational Uh, perspective, and we're supposed to have different perspectives, but so often we don't, and I find that wonderful and terrific, Um, even if you didn't know what Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me was and (laughs) weren't a regular fan of it. uh, There's an intergenerational difference, and I'm hoping that this show introduced our audience to that wonderful weekly show. Victor, the second thing that's really bothering me, um, aside from who's going to win the 2022 uh, elections and voting rights is the concerns of so many Democrats about what's happening at the Department of Justice, about why uh, President Trump, former President Trump, hasn't been indicted yet. And I'm running out of excuses. Um, I have refrained from um, in any way criticizing Uh, the attorney general, because I think he needs to be given time. It takes a long time to build good cases. But even I am getting a little concerned about 
there being no indictments, about there not being any action except saying that they would bring a case under the uh, federal access to clinics, um, which is simply saying you can't be violent at the entrance to a clinic, as opposed to saying they were going to bring a case to protect the civil rights and the constitutional rights of anyone who could become pregnant and who might need help. Uh, so I am equally worried about the uh, that and there not having been any action on taking away the uh, filibuster so that we could get voting rights and protect a woman's or anyone's right with a uterus. So those are concerning me as well. Definitely. Um, I just have one question, maybe just for our audience. I know we've talked a lot about Bill Barr on this podcast, and I'm wondering just for you, like, Merrick Garland obviously wants to protect DOJ as an institution, but do you think he's doing that at the expense of um, taking more drastic measures on things like voting rights and and being more aggressive and, um, you know, maybe prosecuting the insurrectionists and, and Donald Trump? As a former... Um person at the Department of Justice who loves the Department of Justice and who realizes how long it takes to build a case, I'm giving Merrick Garland the opportunity to show us that his uh, words have meaning and that there will be actions following it. Uh, There are some that require immediate action. And so I'm hoping that soon there will be. There are some cases like Oh, the obstruction of justice pointed out in the Mueller case about the um, campaign violations that Michael Cohn went to jail for and which he said he did at the direction of and for the benefit of individual number one, who is clearly the former president. So I think there are some things that are just hanging there that I think need attention right away. There are others that will take time. And I do believe that Merrick Garland was the right person to restore credibility um, and that at some point, if he's being politically careful, it will not be um, doing justice for all America and that action will be required. Thank you for listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Paula Poundstone. We hope it made you laugh a little bit despite the news of the day and that you'll tune in next Wednesday for a brand new episode of iGen Politics and follow us wherever you follow your podcasts. 